Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 17 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be interviewing Naomi Novik, author of the Temeraire series of fantasy novels about an alternate world, Napoleonic Wars, uh, where dragons are real and are used for air power. Actually, you know, when I was at USC, there was a student that, that I knew there, and she's good friends with Naomi. And so when these books first came out, uh, the student Latifa told me, you know, she knew that I liked fantasy and said that I should check them out. And so I, you know, I looked at the website and I mentioned it to John. And so he thought it looked interesting. And so he got his hands on the first book and read it and, and really liked it and, you know, gave it, I think, a really good review. And so at the time, I sort of imagined that I was, I was going to give this huge boost to this new, <laughs> new writer, you know, having this, this really positive review come out. And it was, it was really staggering how quickly Naomi went from a brand new author to just a huge superstar. And probably I think that review didn't have a whole lot to do with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, actually, you know, in her first, uh, the first year that her books came out, you know, uh, the first three all came out in the same year. Um, so, I mean, that had a lot to do with her sort of early success, I think, just because, uh, you know, fans uh, were able to sort of pile on, uh, you know, and see the three different books all in the store um, made, it, made it seem less like a new author. But also, you know, I mean, she got nominated for the Hugo and the Campbell in, the, in that first year. And, um, and, you know, she won the Campbell Award. So, you know, that didn't hurt. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I love those books. Uh, you know, actually, you know, I have very little time to read novels these days just because I'm, I'm reading so much short fiction. And uh, she's one of the few authors who have actually, you know, made the time to read her, her new books as they've come out. So, you know, I'm, I have read everything that she's written so far. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, she has just uh, become a huge star really quickly. But she did spend 10 years in the fan fiction trenches honing her skills. So it's not like she just completely came out of nowhere. There's kind of a joke in entertainment. What does it take to become an overnight success? And the answer is about 10 years. Hmm. And so we'll be talking to Naomi about some of her fan fiction projects. Uh, she's also the uh, head of uh, an organization called the Organization for Transformative Works that sort of promotes for fan-created artwork. Um, she was also a programmer on the Neverwinter Nights computer RPG. Uh, so just lots of great geeky stuff. <laughs> and that we're just really looking forward to talking to her about. Oh, and then stick around after the interview when John and I will be talking about dragons and killing them. <laughs> oh, and, and our thoughts about the new uh, How to Train Your Dragon movie that just came out. All right, let's get Naomi on the phone. Hello. Hi, it's Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, it's Naomi. Thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Uh, okay, so first of all, um, could you tell us what were some of your favorite books from your childhood and teenage years? You know, when I was very little, um, my, my mother is from Poland and my parents spoke Polish at home. So she actually started me out reading uh, Polish fairy tales. And so I grew up on these sort of beautiful, fanciful fairy tales that uh, frequently starred girls in leading roles. Those were always my favorites. Um, and not sort of the Disney princess kind of girls. These were typically girls who were like the heroines of the story. They would go out and have an adventure themselves. And remember at quite a young age, my mom got me the beautiful sort of enormous illustrated version of The Hobbit that had the art based on the movie, on the animated movie. Then The Lord of the Rings actually came fairly early. I, I completely missed about three quarters of it, I think, the first few times I read it. I, I remember Tamora Pierce's Alana books, 
A Wizard of Earthsea, I remember reading at that age. Uh, Robin McKinley's Hero in the Crown and the Blue Sword. Patricia McKillop's Riddle Master of Head trilogy. Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising. Uh, so you went on to study literature at Brown University. Um, what was that like? And would you encourage ins- aspiring writers to major in English or something else instead? The reason that I chose Brown was because Brown did not have a required core curriculum. It let you really shape your own educational experience. Um, and I think that that particular um, process, you know, I didn't go in necessarily intending to major in English. Um, I wanted to be a journalist at the time, or more specifically, I wanted to be Lois Lane. <laughs> let, let's be honest. <laughs> and I kind of went in um, and started taking just all the classes that interested me, that excited me, um, that I could get my hands on. And in the course of that, you know, I sort of ended up taking a lot of English courses um, because I love literature. That sort of, so I kind of ended up with an English major at the end, but along the way, I was going to be a political science major, uh, international relations. Um, I, at one point, I considered dual majoring in French. Um, At one point, I considered dual majoring in biology. For me, at least, I, um, I found that that process of exploring a whole range of different fields actually was incredibly useful training for a future as a writer. So if you wanted to be Lois Lane, uh, what's your favorite incarnation of Superman that sort of inspired you to want to be Lois? Oh, um, I, I was reading the comics, you know, those the the Silver Age comics. Um, although, you know, this is really quite funny. It, it wasn't that I... I never actually particularly liked Superman. Lex Luthor Luthor was always my favorite. Lois and Lex were like, those were the characters that I liked um, and found exciting and intriguing. And in fact, I remember um, being quite irritated at both the comic on a sort of meta level because I was like, there is no way Lois Lane does not know. (laughs) Um, But he's wearing glasses. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Nobody could ever see through, through that astonishing disguise. And that's – so actually when I was in college, I think, was when they rebooted the series with the Man of Steel miniseries. And I remember really liking that because it made me very happy because it kind of it kind of got away from this really sort of terrible thing where Superman was this kind of creepy, weird jerk who, like, lied to Lois Lane all the time. <laughs> um, and Lois was apparently oblivious. So did you ever write any Superman fan fiction? Oh, yes. I've written um, Smallville, actually. I wrote a lot of Smallville fanfic. I've written in, I think, at least 43 different fandoms. I've written some Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. My first ever piece of fan fiction, which I think is mercifully lost to the world, <laughs> um, was for uh, Phantom of the Opera. Um, and then I wrote some really terrible fan fiction for Star Trek The Next Generation when I was in college. Would you encourage uh, other aspiring writers to write fanfic? And like, what are some of the pros and cons of writing fanfic versus inventing new characters and worlds and stuff? I would say I would encourage people to write fanfic if they like the idea of writing fanfic. I actually had this question at Icon this past weekend. You know, somebody, somebody, I was mentioning that fanfiction was certainly very useful for me as, uh, you know, letting me hone my writing ability and creative writing ability and skills. Um, and somebody on the table, down the table was like, ugh, fanfiction. Why would anybody do that instead of, you know, writing their own things and sending off the story for publication for, for money? And I, I turned to the guy and said, do you play an instrument? And he's like, I play the piano. And I'm like, well, why aren't you at Carnegie Hall right now? 
you know, if somebody is thinking, I want to become a published pro writer, you know, fan fiction can still potentially be useful, but fan fiction really needs passion behind it. Um, and that's what I think. If you do like writing fan fiction, you certainly shouldn't keep yourself from doing it in the feeling that, oh, you're wasting your time. Would you consider like writing an actual licensed uh, story in some universe? And, and if so, like, you know, do you have one that's uh, a sort of dream project for you? Um, I wouldn't say that I'd never do it, but just economically, if I'm doing work for money, um, it makes much more sense for me to make IP that I own myself. You know, the pleasure, one of the pleasures of writing fan fiction is that you don't work to a deadline. The story can be as long as you feel it should be. If you get bored and, you know, if you're writing a work in progress and you're like, eh, I'm, I've lost the thread of this, or if the story kind of gets stuck, you don't have to sort of force yourself through it. You put it aside and you can come back to it later. What makes, I think, professional writing professional is that you have to do it as work. So it would probably be unlikely that I'd do a um, a professional tie-in unless something really amazing was offered to me. I'd certainly consider it for something like, you know, a, I think there have been some, some interesting things done with Superman um, and DC novels in particular, um, universe novels. But, uh, but yeah, that would probably – I'd have a hard time thinking of what – what it is that I would I would take on as a professional project because I, I have too many ideas of my own hmm. so you know okay um, so now you worked as a programmer on the game Neverwinter Nights uh, how did you get into programming games and how'd that influence your writing so my senior year in college I got started to get more interested in computers partly because I was getting interested in fandom and spending time um, you know online and then after I graduated, I my first job um, was kind of a jack-of-all-trades position where I got to really um, do kind of whatever I wanted. It was a startup office, um, so I got to do a little systems work. I got to do a little coding, and I really was enjoying it, so I decided to go back and start taking some classes part-time. And um, I liked the idea of working on computer games because it felt like the perfect match of creativity and technical halves of my brain. And that's really, I was basically working on, um, I had finished my master's and was, had finished up the coursework for a PhD uh, when the offer to work on Neverwinter Nights um, came along. And it was just wildly exciting, much more so than than a dissertation. <laughs> um, and I sort of jumped ship and went for that. How did uh, working on did the working on the video games did that influence your writing at all? Uh, yes, absolutely. Before I was writing, before I worked on uh, Under and Tide, I had been writing pretty much short vignettes only. Um, I wrote under five thousand words, pretty much. Everything that I wrote was short. And, you know, it was sort of what I was doing in my spare time between between homework assignments, essentially. And then I worked on um, Under and Tide. And I, in addition to being a programmer, um, I was able to participate in the design of the actual gameplay. And working on the design of how you get 30 hours of gameplay really taught me a lot about how to structure a longer work of fiction. 
as well, because that's really kind of what you need to do when you're creating a role-playing game, is basically come up with a storyline that many people can play through for quite a long time. And that was, uh, that was really va- valuable to me in terms of learning how to structure a longer work. And without even intending to, after that, I found that I started, my story started to get longer. I was getting more interested in, in plot and writing longer, more intricate plots. And I sort of felt like I suddenly had the tools to do that with. How did you actually get the, uh, the job offer to work on the game? Did, did you like write any of those, um, those fan created modules and, and they, and you sort of came to their attention or how did that happen? No, it was just, you know, one of those who you know kinds of things. Um, a friend of my, a friend of ours was, um, was Rick Ernst, who was working par- as part of Floodgate Entertainment. Uh, and he knew that I was both a programmer and interested in gaming. And I uh, asked me if I'd like to join the team. And uh, I said, sure. And that was it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, well. you know, I will I will say that it's one of the problems, I think, with the computer game industry, that there isn't a clear path into it for a lot of people if, if you don't know somebody. And that's something that particularly hampers, um, particularly hampers girls, I think, uh, and women from getting involved um, in the industry and in module creation. And that's obviously there. There are all sorts of reasons why um, why it's a difficult field for women to be in, but that's part of it, or at least it was. I mean, you know, things have certainly changed, and I haven't been involved in that world for several years. But what are some of your favorite video games that you didn't work on? <laughs> um, well, very recently, I just finished uh, finished playing Dragon Age: mm. um, Age of Origins, which I enjoyed quite a bit, and uh, Oblivion was the one before that. I really like, um, I like RPGs, period. Um, but I tend to like RPGs that really have a strong story and immersive environment. I think I liked Oblivion a bit more in that I felt like it kind of invited you to sort of really feel that you were your character and sort of integrated you into the world um, and gave you such enormous freedom I remember just like there were scenes where you're on the horse riding through the countryside and it's just seamless and it's just amazing. Um, but I liked the uh, henchmen in Dragon Age quite a lot. The design of those was just really well done. They really felt like people and like characters. So uh, what was the process like of writing your first book from the time you first got the idea to the time the book actually appeared? Manic terror that I was going to not finish it. Um, I wrote the first Temeraire in a, a little bit over two months, um, the first draft, obviously, uh, because I was so, you know, I was like, this is the longest thing I've ever written. It's the first sort of really uh, original work. I found it really compelling to write. I really, I was excited. You know, I wanted to sit down at the computer for eight hours a day and just bang away at it. But I was, I, I was totally, you know, am I going to be able to do this was my, was my fear. And so then when I was able to do it, I was very excited, and, uh, and I've calmed down a little bit since then. So now I take three months for a first draft. And, and so how did, how, did it, how did you go about getting it published? I mean, what was that process like? This is the part where a very first-time author, you know, brings out the pitchforks and the torches. <laughs> and my husband, Charles Ardai, um, who is himself a wonderful, celebrated, award-winning author, were, his first job at the age of 17 was working for Cynthia Manson at Asimov's. And 
she later on went on to be to become a, an agent and w- remained a close friend. She was at our wedding. And so when I wrote the book, she was the person that I sent it to. So I basically was sort of like, you know, is this any good? Is this going to be saleable? And she had not handled science fiction at all before then. She nor- normally handles mostly thrillers So as an agent. So she, however, had a good friend, Betsy Mitchell, at Del Rey. And she sent it to Betsy, kind of, I, I think she was sort of sending it to Betsy in the sense of, is this any good? Uh, because she, she didn't know herself. And uh, Betsy said, yes, and can we have two more? <laughs> and that was basically it. I, I don't think I'd finished, I, I hadn't finished the book when I sent it to Cynthia. I'd sent her the first 50,000 words. Um, and by the time we heard back from Betsy, I had finished the rest, so I could send her the rest of the manuscript. And very, very quickly, we signed the first three-book deal. So so you mentioned that you're married to Charles Ardai. What's what's it like living with another writer? And do you show him your works in progress, or do you keep that separate? Oh, no. it's uh, For me, it's wonderful. I, I love being edited. I would show people things... Um, just like people on the street paragraph or you know paragraph by paragraph not not necessarily people on the street but people whose whose literary judgment i trust um i would show things you know in in as small chunks as as they would take them and charles is a wonderful editor um and wonderful plotter so i i pretty much pitch him my stories uh very often and so it's it's great for me charles on the other hand hates revising and i always want revisions so I, I don't know if it's as wonderful for him, but for me it is wonderful, and uh, yeah. So so and it's great because we have our computers in the same room, and we we sit together in our office and sit for hours, and you know, hunched over our keyboards, deep into the hours of the night, and then occasionally we look up and are like, "Hi." <laughs> uh, so the, your Temeraire series was optioned by Peter Jackson. Um, how did that come about? My agent. Cynthia um, sent it to an agent that she works with in California, Joel Gottler, and he got it to Peter. And they came back, and one day there was just a phone call, and and uh, I, I don't know that I actually – I think they mentioned several different directors as it going to, and it wasn't the sort of thing that I kind of gave credence to because I sort of assumed that you send it off into the Hollywood, which is like this – you know, super massive black hole in the distance, and then you forget about it. And then one day, this call came out of the blue, and they said, Peter Jackson wants to option all three books. And I was <laughs> like, okay. And I ran around screaming. But yeah, you know, the option has a long term on it. But, you know, I I obviously am really excited for them to work on it. Um, he's talked about it a little bit in interviews, the different things that he's considering doing with it. And we'll see what happens. I mean, I loved what, what it did in Avatar for the flying beasts. Mm. So I'm really excited to see see what they come up with for Temeraire. And you had to keep it secret for quite a while, right? After you got the news? Oh yes, yes, no, because it took it took almost a year to just get the contract signed. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I have to say it's... So, just... I mean, were you just sitting in conversations with people and you're just, like, shaking because you want to tell them? And... <laughs> you know, I told, I told like, the, the people closest to me, my family knew and Charles knew, and obviously, and, um, like, my best friend knew, but that was basically it. And, you know, for the first couple of weeks, yes, <laughs> and then you sort of forget that it's happening and go on with your life because otherwise you just go crazy. And And that's kind of my general philosophy about the project as a whole. It's like... 
what I can do is is just keep enjoying writing the books and the characters, and uh, you know, hopefully one day I get to get to see them on the screen. So, uh, what what did you think of Peter Weir's Master and Commander movie? And do you imagine a Temeraire movie looking kind of like that, or do you have something different in mind? Oh, I, I adored Master and Commander. Um, in fact, I, I should clarify: the first time I saw it, um, Charles and I walked out and we we're like, Meh. it it was nice. You know, I sort of I appreciated the the authenticity of it, and I liked the characters. I sort of felt like, but I don't know that I the movie was sort of necessarily satisfying as as kind of a narrative there there didn't feel like there was enough at stake in that particular episode of the series and that was kind of my feeling as i first came out of it but i was like you know but i like those characters and then i picked up a couple of the books and then i picked up all the rest of the books and then i saw the movie three more times (laughs) um and you know, it sort of it sort of caught me um, in a in a way, and I love the authenticity of it. I certainly hope that the movies capture that that feeling of the period and that that sense of realism that these are people living in a real and harsh and difficult environment and difficult conditions, and then add dragons to that in feeling the same kind of way. Like if for me, the dream would be if the dragons felt as real as sort of tactile as believable as the ship uh and and the experiences in that movie did and i think that's an enormous challenge but you know i certainly can't complain about the director who's got it so hmm. uh so what kind of historical research do you do for your books to sort of make them feel that same kind of authenticity i read a lot basically <laughs> that's that's the short answer I, I frequently start on Wikipedia, and I use Amazon reviews. I tend to look at the reviews on Amazon of bad books hmm. um, on a particular topic because people get annoyed at the bad books and hmm. recommend other ones. Hmm. Amazon sort of like, if you like this book, you might be interested in these. You know, recommendations are also really useful for kind of quickly finding the best books available on a topic, easily available. Obviously, there's a lot of books that are out of print that are hard to get, but a lot of a lot of things that are available more easily. That's that's a great way to find them. Was there like one or two books in particular that you thought were really great for you know giving you a good idea of what the Napoleonic era was like? The Napoleonic era was a little easier for me in that I I'd been a sort of buff. His, I'm, I love history. I love reading about history. And particularly, I was sort of a Napoleon fangirl. So I already knew quite a lot about that period. I would say certainly one of the most valuable books for me was the Military Atlas of the Napoleonic Wars, which basically shows you each battle, shows you the troop movements over the course of several days, um, really describes in detail exactly how the maneuvering was going on, because that was something that totally did not interest me before I started doing research. Um, Nelson's Navy is a fantastic book, and there's a great book called Life in the Georgian City, and I would say those are all fantastic books for the period. There was a a book you mentioned, too, I think, where it was all letters written by people. Oh, yes. Um, Every Man Will Do His Duty is is an anthology of first-person accounts. It's not just letters. It's also sort of autobiographical narratives and memoirs. And that, but it's all primary sources, uh, and that's that's really some of the most useful stuff you can get. And you do you do some traveling too, sort of as research. 
Oh, absolutely. When I can, uh, I like to, what I, what I most like to do is kind of have a draft or at least an outline and kind of know where, where my story's going and where the key places are. And then traveling there in a more directed way. Is there, have there been any sort of funny experiences you've had or things that surprised you while you were traveling? Uh, an elephant knocked down a tree um, almost on our tent in Africa. <laughs> uh, that, w- that was certainly uh, invigorating as an experience. These were sort of pitched tents, and they give you a horn to blow if there's an emergency, which they explained was if the animals come into the tent. Um, but the elephant, so the elephant knocked down the tree. Uh, it, the top of the tree landed just outside sort of the little window of the tent. And then the elephant came over because the reason they knocked down the trees is so they can eat the tops. <laughs> so it, it was standing literally about two feet outside the tent, <laughs> crunching this tree. And it's a big elephant with like tusks and and we're sort of peering out the window with a flashlight, like that scene in Jurassic Park with the Tyrannosaur <laughs> and the kids like shining the flashlight in its face. And yeah, I re- you remember when you're watching that movie, you're like, what are you doing, you stupid children? And what, let me tell you, when you're inside the tent <laughs> and there's something loud and large outside munching, you shine the flashlight out. <laughs> uh, and it just stayed there. And we started thinking, well, what if it knocks down another tree? I mean, I, I really didn't think the elephant was measuring the trees to make sure that the tree wouldn't actually hit the tent. <laughs> so we blew the horn and uh, and the camp staff came and, and they chased the elephant away and they came to us in sort of this like, oh, silly tourists attitude. We're like, you know, it, everything was fine. The elephant wasn't actually in your tent. Which, first of all, once the elephant is in the tent, I don't know that I'm blowing the horn. I think I'm <laughs> screaming loudly and running for my life. And secondly, and we were like, well, all right, well, why didn't you just come and tell us that it was okay and not to worry? Because we'd had to blow the horn like five or six times before anybody stirred. And they said, well, we couldn't because there was an elephant in the way and the elephant is dangerous. <laughs> So did that did that inspire you to uh, have the dragons take vengeance on elephants in, in the books? <laughs> yeah, well, apparently there's also a legend of Ethiopian dragons, uh, an Ethiopian kind of um, mythical beast that eats elephants. But it also just generally seemed to me that dragons <laughs> think elephants were delicious. You know what what better what better animal to to cultivate if your dragon is going to become uh, if dragons are going to make an agrarian sort of cattle herding society. I, I think they're going for the elephants. It's <laughs> bang for the buck. Uh, so, so when you went about creating your dragons, uh, how much did you draw on previous stories and how much was just your own imagination? Part of the, the thing that mostly shaped my particular dragons um, was a combination of wanting to preserve the, the feel of realism. Obviously, I want people to suspend disbelief enough to accept the existence of dragons, and you can't look too closely at how they fly and where all the food comes from and little details like that. But I I wanted it to feel on sort of a moment-to-moment level quite realistic. So I didn't want them to be magical. I did want them to have to eat and get tired and reflect sort of the physical reality of animals in the world. So I really kind of thought about that. I looked up what information we have, sort of the best guesses of scientists about dinosaurs, like pterodactyls um, and sort of just physical measurements to kind of give me constraints on the size and the, and the speed that dragons could fly. 
and and that really kind of is what governed it within the context of you know the five billion dragon stories that are out there which i really love and which absolutely have influenced me so you're the head of the board of the organization for transformative works uh, which promotes uh, fan created art what are some of the issues surrounding fan fiction today and uh, what do you think can be done to improve the situation actually with fan fiction we're actually pretty pretty confident that there isn't a huge issue in fan fiction that it's it's mostly a misunderstanding um there are a lot of writers who are unnecessarily afraid that it hurts them um to have fan fiction being written that it puts them at risk it pretty much doesn't and so we're trying on the fan fiction side i think the most important thing that we're doing is we're building an open source software package to host the archive of our own at archiveofourown.org, if anyone's interested. And I, I'm really proud of this, actually. I'm, I'm totally going to digress and soapbox at you guys for a little bit. I think we have the most women working on an open source software project of any open source software project out there. Our team is is almost is majority is more than majority women. It's it's uh, almost entirely women. Our sysadmins are women. Our designers are women. Our coders are women. And it's something where we've really nurtured a lot of people who had almost no programming experience and have become come on and become major contributors to the project. You know, so so finding a way to preserve fan fiction in such a way that people can find sort of the classic stories so that people can, can keep track of their favorite authors, you know, as they move from fandom to fandom, because it's been so decentralized that a lot of really amazing stories have just been lost. You know, people put up a GeoCity site, GeoCity is completely gone. And a lot of times people sort of wander in and out of fandom drop a few fantastic stories and wander back out again. And you sort of want to find some way to preserve those stories. And that's that's really the most important thing with fan fiction. Um, in terms of the legal issues, the big problem is, of course, for vitting. Fan vitting suffers a lot from the sort of aggressive hostility of the recording industry that goes after people who use even fair use amounts of audio and does not care whether you're making a remixed piece of work that's transformative and that is fair use. Um, they will use the same sort of sledgehammer on you as they do on the pirate who's just trying to actually sell pirated copies of DVDs on the street and really kind of making their best customers into criminals, which is really unfortunate. Uh, so we're trying to do our best to work with the EFF and the Stanford Fair Use Foundation to put together a set of best practices for fanish vitters um, and for remix artists in general to kind of create a set of guidelines that we hope at least will make people calm down from the sort of knee jerk, uh, we're sending you a DMCA pull down notification. Um, and I generally think that, that the sort of, that people are kind of starting to get it. You know, there are very few people these days who haven't seen a funny YouTube video. And there aren't a lot of people who don't, you know, even on the commercial side, who don't understand the value of getting people so deeply invested in your intellectual property that they want to make essentially free advertising for you hmm. and involve people in your world. Uh, I, I mean, speaking for myself, there is nothing more amazing than getting a piece of Temeraire fan art 
sent to me or going on deviantart.com and, and running around there and <laughs> seeing all the art that people have posted for Temeraire. It's, it's magical. And knowing that people have written fan fiction for Temeraire, it, it, it thrills me. And sometimes I have a hard time understanding. Uh, you know, there are people who have a kind of moral objection to it or a sort of like, this is mine. This is my baby. Um, you don't get to touch it. And that particular objection is not a legal misunderstanding. That's sort of a more emotional kind of reaction. And there, my, you know, my general response, our general response is you don't get to control how people respond to your work. You know, I would love it if nobody ever left a negative review on Amazon.com for my books. Uh, however, I don't get to go on there and say, you are wrong. You are wrong to dislike my book, uh, even if they are wrong, which, of course, clearly they are. But, you know, that's that's the risk you take when you share something outside, you know, take something out of your drawer and send it out into the world. And I don't believe in in the sort of myth of originality. There is no piece of art that you make that is so unique that it stands completely alone. And if it does, then I don't think anybody could understand it or would care about it because we shape, you know, we are shaped by the world that we live in and the experiences that we take. And um, and that's what kind of gives us the context for understanding new things. So, so do you think that copyright law properly interpreted is, is adequate or, or would you like to see long term changes made to copyright law? The problems that I have with the current copyright law are partly the extensions of it, that now copyright has basically become infinite, because every time Mickey Mouse gets close to coming out of copyright, Disney basically spends enormous amounts of money to try and get copyright pushed out further. Um, when it was initially started at, uh, I think, 14 years, and now it's up to the life of the author plus 50 and it, it just really kind of kind of reduces our public domain and impoverishes our popular culture, you know. And and it's like, what would Shakespeare be doing right now? He couldn't write Hamlet, um, you know. He couldn't write uh, Romeo and Juliet because he took those stories from other people, and that's that's kind of ridiculous, you know. So I, I feel like that that really could use some work. Um, the term of copyright, I think that the criminalization of individuals for doing what is natural, you know, downloading a piece of music to listen to, to see if they want it and if they want to own it, you know, and, and the sort of DMCA provisions that basically put enormous power in the hands of corporations to go after individuals who, even if they are in the right, just can't take the risk because... You know, if it's like if they're going to lose, if they're going to be charged one hundred fifty thousand dollars every time that for for every copyright violation, that's a risk that most individual people can't take, even if their work is fair use. But in terms of for fan fiction, you know, I feel like fair use, and I I should clarify, this is my knowledge is really sort of limited to the United States. Um, I I am not super familiar with issues outside the United States, and I I know that these these laws are different all over the world. But fair use, you know, protects transformative work, and it protects not non-commercial work. So, you know, for the kind of fan fiction that we're working on, that we're most interested in protecting in the OTW, we feel that those two provisions basically, you know, those, those criteria really do make it fairly safe. And it's more a question of making people understand 
if you're interested in helping supporting the uh, work of the OTW, the Organization for Transformative Works, um, our website is at transformativeworks.org. And uh, I totally encourage people to check that out and, and see our goals and uh, come on board. So, so what, are, what are some of your newer upcoming projects that uh, people should check out? So Tongues of Serpents, book six in the Temeraire series, is coming out uh, in July. I'll actually be traveling a bit to promote that. I'll be doing appearances um, in a bunch of cities and at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, so I'm really excited. I love going to San Diego Comic-Con so much. <laughs> and I have a manga coming out with the wonderful artist Yishan Lee. And that is called Liberty Vocational, and it's the story of a girl who goes to um, superhero vocational school hmm. and uh, how, how she deals with, with that. And um, I am currently working on a young adult trilogy, um, which is still in the early stages, so I won't say too much about that. Um, and I have a bunch of short stories out. But uh, and and the outline for book seven has just been signed off on by Del Rey, and the Temeraire series will be going to nine books total. Okay, great. Well, Naomi Novik, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> and that was our interview. So thanks so much to Naomi for joining us on the show. So so first of all, there was just one thing I wanted to clear up. It's sort of a widespread belief that medieval map makers would mark unexplored mm. regions of their maps with the phrase, here be dragons. And I've believed this for a long time, too. And it's kind of a cool idea, but it turns out it's not true. Uh, so there's a, uh, if you're interested in this, there's a pretty good article on Strange Horizons by Michael Livingston called Modern Medieval Map Myths. And so here's what he says about here be dragons. Though the notion that medieval maps marked the edge of the known world with the phrase, here be dragons, or tigers or monsters, is widespread in our society. I don't know anyone who has ever figured out how the myth was started. To begin with, let me take the time and space here to provide you the complete list of known medieval maps, including this rubric, in any language. The Lennox Globe, circa 1503-7, which bears the Latin phrase hic sunt dracones, i.e. here are dragons, on the east coast of Asia. That's it. Huh. So how the phrase ever gains the legendary status that we assume it to have is absolutely mystifying. And actually, uh, on, that, on that one globe, the Lennox globe, when they see, say, here are dragons, it seems fairly li likely that they mean, here are the Komodo dragons. Uh, so it's not even meaning, you know, here are mysterious monsters or anything like that. Maybe it was actually just a note from the, from the writer of the map to the artist to, like, actually depict some dragons there to make it look cool. And he just, you know, they just printed it on there instead. <laughs> I don't know. Komodo dragons are pretty nasty, though. Yeah, they are pretty scary. Like, uh, I don't know if you've seen that new uh, series on the Discovery Channel called Life, um, but it's just like you know, it's sort of uh, a tour throughout all the sort of animal life on the Earth. And uh, one of the one of the shows, uh, they you know, they talk about reptiles and stuff, and so they they feature the Komodo dragon pretty prominently. And that is a pretty scary animal, I have to say. It's uh, you know, I can see why they call it a dragon. Yeah, I mean, they don't breathe fire or anything, but right. apparently their teeth are so long that they are constantly cutting the animal's gums every time mm -hmm. they open and close their mouths. And I guess the animal's mouth is so septic that anything it bites, you know, they just bite. They don't even bother, like, really trying to kill stuff. They just bite something once and then just hang out for a while mm -hmm. and just assume that whatever they bit is going to die because there's so much bacteria in their mouth. That's true of me, too, so, just, <laughs> you know, stay away from <laughs> Stay away from me if I'm, you know, looking feral. 
But still, I think I could kill a Komodo dragon. I don't think, <laughs> you know, if I had an Uzi or something. But you're not sure you could kill an actual dragon, like a, you know. Or I guess the Komodo dragon is the actual dragon, but um, <laughs> it's real, you know. But yeah. you, you, you couldn't kill a fantasy dragon, you're saying, with, a, with an Uzi? Even with an Uzi? Oh, I, I don't know. Well, you know, I have actually killed a lot of dragons. You know, mostly imaginary, uh, you know, video game dragons. Sure. But I think that that counts. Yeah, why not? I think that you're, that, you're that, a dragon slayer. I think that gives me some sort of expertise. That's I think that's going to be a, a a consistent theme on this episode is just how to kill dragons and different kinds of dragons. And that was making me think of you know I saw an interview with Tom Shippey, the author of Tolkien, author of the century, where he was he was talking about when Tolkien was writing The Hobbit. You know he knew that this dragon Smog was going to be killed, but he had to figure out how it was going to happen. And actually, at the time, there weren't a whole lot of sources about how you might kill a dragon to draw on. Um, so there was Beowulf, but, you know, Beowulf dies in the course of killing that dragon. So that's not a good model to use. <laughs> and then another one is, you know, Sigurd killing the dragon Fafner. And this is definitely, if I would, were going to have to kill a dragon, this is one thing I would think about doing. So what Sigurd does is he digs a hole in the ground and then waits for the dragon to pass overhead and then stabs it from below. That's pretty clever. <laughs> And of course, Smog in The Hobbit is killed by an expert archer with a lucky arrow who knows about the uh, unarmored spot on Smog's chest. So those are two ways to kill dragons. But uh, some of the dragons I've killed in video games, you know, I, I, we can't go a show without mentioning King's Quest. So I'm, I'm just <laughs> going to mention in King's Quest 1, you know, you, you face off against this small dragon and you have to throw a bucket full of water into his mouth and extinguish his fire. And the dragon is so uh, mortified that he slinks off. Uh, and then in King's Quest 3, you use a magic spell to summon a lightning storm, and then a lightning bolt strikes this three-headed dragon, which is the tallest thing in the area. I would I would think if you had um, access to sort of uh, you know modern equipment, like you know a heat-seeking missile would work really great for a fire-breathing dragon because you know it could just like go right down its throat <laughs> and into its belly where all that fire is. Um, then it would blow up on the inside, you know, because uh, I mean, actually, even even a missile to the outside of a dragon would probably actually kind of hurt it a lot, I would think. Mm. Um, I mean, admittedly, a, uh, uh, you know, a fire breathing dragon probably is resistant, very resistant to fire. But still, you know, like, you know, it's a missile. It explodes. That would probably hurt. But it would hurt even more from the inside. Mm. You know, in Dungeons and Dragons, they have a world called Dragon Lance, where it's all all about riding dragons and having Lances, in fact, on your dragon. Um, but actually, how I first learned about Dragon Lance is there was this computer game called Heroes of the Lance uh, that was based. It was sort of based on um, the original Dragon Lance adventure module, where you explore the ruins of Zak Tisaroth, and it was kind of a crap game, actually. You know, this was back in the early days of PC gaming, and kids today they don't they don't realize what we had to put up with. <laughs> They've never seen a CGA screen, but let me just explain to you what that means. So on a PC, it used to be you would have games in CGA, which means they only had four colors, black, mm. white, turquoise, and magenta. I believe it's cyan. Cyan? Yeah, not turquoise. Oh, uh, well, okay. It's sort of light blue and a sort of light purplish. And if you can imagine just those four colors splashed together, it's not a pretty picture. <laughs> and so you would be exploring these dungeons, and oftentimes I would just you know fall into a pit or something. And you're like, oh, that was a pit? <laughs> I couldn't tell because the, the graphics, it's kind of hard to make out what it is when everything's a mixture of those four colors. But so, you know, in that, uh, in that game, you have to fight this big black dragon at the end. And this is kind of one of the ways in which it's just kind of a crap game is, is you have this crystal staff that one of the characters has. And if you hit the dragon with that, it dies. 
Hmm. And if you hit it with anything else, it's impossible to kill. So that makes sense. Once you figure that out, you know. You know your your memory for things you played when you were a child just astonishes me. No matter how many times I hear you recount uh, <laughs> in vivid detail your adventures from King's Quest or these other games, uh, I just can't fathom how you remember that stuff in such vivid detail. It's just you know it's just it's all in what you care about, you know. Right, right. What's important to you, what your priorities are, mm-hmm. you might say. Um, there was also uh, an NES, you know, Nint- the original Nint- Nintendo system game called Dragon Warrior. That's even got dragon right in the title. <laughs> you fight a dragon at the end of that one. Well, it would be kind of a letdown if you didn't fight a dragon <laughs> in that one, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, those games, they you know, there were a lot of letdowns playing those games. Though. Like Heroes of the Lance, on the cover it has a picture of you riding a dragon, you know, flying mm-hmm. through the air with a lance, and you never do that in the game. Right. So you can never tell with those games. I remember, uh, you know, a couple of games where, where the dragons were actually really cool. Like, um, you know, the, in the Neverwinter Nights uh, series... Um, you know, there was a bunch of, uh, you know, I, we asked Naomi if she had ever worked in any of those sort of fan-created modules that you could download. And, um, you know, she said no. But, I mean, I remembered, uh, you know, after I played through the whole game, you know, the original game that you buy, um, once I finished playing that original adventure, you know, I went and I downloaded a bunch of those um, fan-created modules. And, obviously, the quality of those was uh, variable. But I remember one that was, like, it was, like, amazing. It was, like, so well-written. I mean, I kind of wonder, I kind of suspected that maybe Naomi had written it, um, <laughs> you know, after I, after I learned that she worked on the game. You know, there was, like, a scene, like, right at the beginning of it where, like, you're actually flying on, on a dragon, which is, like, something that they didn't even have in the <laughs> regular game. So I was like, how, how do they even do that? And, 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 there was other, and there was other things in, in there with dragons, too, that, uh, that was very cool. Um, you know, that's based on Dungeons & Dragons. And, you know, there's another Dungeons & Dragons game, too, that I remember um, called uh, Pool of Radiance. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, do you remember that? Oh, hell yeah. Um, and, uh, and if I recall correctly, at the end of that, you fight a dragon, too, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, his name is like... Uh, Tyrant Praxis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a crazy, crazy name for a dragon, but I, I, always, uh, I always loved it. I remember that, um, you know, there wasn't any, wasn't any of that stupid stuff where, like, you know, you had to have some special weapon to kill. You, you didn't have need that special crystal staff or whatever to kill the dragon at the end of this. It's like, you know, you just had to sort of strategize and figure out what you can do with, uh, with your characters to actually survive the final battle, you know? Well, there was actually a sequel to Pool. I mean, I played Pool of Radiance. I actually was never able to, able to beat that one because, mm-hmm. um, you know, then the sequel came out and I was more interested in playing the sequel. But the sequel was called Curse of the Azure Bonds. Oh, I remember it well. And that's, you know, one of my, my all-time favorite games. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely, you know, the best written of any D&D computer game I ever played. You know, the, the plot is that there are these five evil organizations and they all need a party of adventurers to, to serve as pawns. And so they kidnap you and tattoo you. And these tattoos are magical, and they kind of make you the slaves of these five evil organizations. And you have to kind of explore the land and find some way to kill them all. And each time you kill one of the bad guys, you know, one of the tattoos fades away. And so one of the places you go is this, this sort of wizard's fortress. And when you walk in, he has a pet Dracolich, uh, which is sort of a huge undead skeletal dragon. Mm-hmm. And so this thing comes at you, and you're like, there's no freaking way, <laughs> you know, my characters can fight this thing. And then it just says, you know, either come with me or die. And so you're like, okay, I'll come with you. And so he leads you up to the top of the tower, and then he then he leaves. And there's a wizard, and you know, some some stuff goes down, and you end up, uh, you know, having to fight your way down through level after level after level of this fortress. And finally, you fight the wizard and kill him and get away. And you know, then you're you're you've escaped. And you're like, wow, phew, I didn't have to fight that Dracolich. <laughs> but then he's he's like following you. 
and there's no way you can avoid fighting him and he just comes out of the woods sooner or later he comes out of the woods and says you know you killed my master and now i'll have my revenge and you're like oh crap <laughs> and you know you remember in those games like when one of your characters dies it goes like Pow! and there's like the red skull and crossbones mm-hmm. appears over them and so fighting that dracolich so frustrating it's just like like the fight starts and you know it's like dracolich breathes fire and your character's just like Pow! Pow! and and you're stuck because you know you've he's following you so it's not mm-hmm. like you can just go off somewhere and build up your characters you know you have to keep doing this fight over and over until you beat him but it was very memorable and a sort of cool storytelling thing where you have a, a powerful villain like that following following you around. Yeah, I mean that that was actually one of the problems that the that there always was with uh, games like D anD D or 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 video games like this is that the dragons are really cool, right? But they're so hard. I mean, they're so like they're so powerful that like you can only really ever expect the the characters to face them once they've really sort of advanced very far. So it's like you know what you really want to do is fight dragons. I mean, like Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> You know, D&D, one of the D stands for dragons. I want to fight dragons, you know, but then, you know, you have to play for a long time before you're actually good enough to be able to handle fighting a dragon. So, I mean, that's kind of unfortunate, but um, it does make them much more awesome when you actually do have to, you know, deal with them. Yeah, and that's one of those, like, weird things you just kind of have to go with, with the game dynamics of Dungeons and Dragons. Like, well, I've killed 10,000 trolls, so now I can kill a dragon with one hit, you know? Right. It's like, what? (laughs) It all makes sense in Dungeons and Dragons world. But, uh... In, in Dragon Warrior, you know, I was going to say you, you fight this dragon at the end. And before you fight him, he offers you a chance. It's sort of like the, um, the Emperor in Star Wars, where he's like, join me and we'll, together we'll rule the world. Mm-hmm. And if you say yes, you just die instantly. <laughs> it's kind of lame. And so it, it, it's really lame if you've spent hours and hours and hours getting, through the, getting, getting up to him. And then mm-hmm. you accidentally hit the wrong button. Mm-hmm. And then you just die. And you're like, no! <laughs> there goes the last four hours of my life. But... There, that was, there was something sort of um, intriguing about that. I always sort of would fantasize. I mean, obviously, like a game with that much memory, you know nothing really cool is going to happen. But I always sort of fantasize that you can say, okay, sure, I'll join you. And then he like sends you out on missions with a whole army of monsters and stuff. And you go around burning villages and things. <laughs> There's sort of moments like that in video games where, where possibilities like that open up. And you just know that the game isn't sophisticated enough to allow any kind of actual branching of the plot. But... Mm-hmm. It sort of haunts you. You know, well, what if you actually could do something like that? Uh, there was another game. Did you ever play Loom? Came, it was from LucasArts. It came out around the same time as Monkey Island. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, this is just one of the most amazing games I've ever seen. So, you know, in most adventure games, you would pick up, you know, you pick up items and put them together and use them in different ways. And so Loom was completely different. You don't uh, ever pick up any items. You just have your magic wand and you have to play through the whole game just with stuff you can do with your magic wand. And so how it works is the magic wand, when you see certain things happening in the world, it causes musical notes to play on your magic wand. So like, for example, near the beginning, you're on this island and you have to swim to the mainland and there's this tornado in the ocean blocking your way and it causes a certain sequence of notes to play on your uh, magic wand and that's the twisting song. And so if you play those, if you use your magic wand and play those notes in reverse at the tornado, it untwists it and it disappears and then you can keep going. But so then you also know the twisting and the untwisting songs. So if you encounter anything else in the world that needs some twisting, you know, you know what to do. But so there's like a part where you find a, a spinning wheel that turns, you know, that spins uh, straw into gold. And, uh, and so it teaches you a song. And so then when you encounter a dragon, you know, you walk into this dragon's horde. And so the, there's the dragon sitting on all its gold. And so you use the reverse song to turn all its gold into straw. And then it's 
it inadvertently sets all the straw on fire and kind <laughs> of freaks out and flies out. So that's another way you can take care of those pesky dragons. <laughs> and so, so speaking of Dungeons & Dragons, if you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons, you'll know that different colors of dragons breathe different kinds of stuff. So I thought it would be fun to give John a pop quiz, <laughs> test out, uh, you know, if you see a different kind of dra- different kinds of dragons, what kind of stuff can you expect them to breathe at you? And this will be according to my Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Monstrous Compendium Volume 1. So uh, this is going to be the final arbiter, because <laughs> I know John's going to maybe protest some of these. I'm ready. Okay, so going in alphabetical order, if a uh, black dragon comes at you, what can you expect it to be breathing? Acid. Hey, all right, good. Uh, how about a blue dragon? Electricity. Wow. Lightning bolts. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, hmm, this is going to be a little tricky. Okay, how about a brass dragon? Uh, so, you know, when you get into the metallic dragons, that's just cheating, you know, because those aren't real dragons. Uh, the, the only real dragons are, are, the, are the primary color dragons. Everybody knows that. But uh, as they started expanding the dragons to the different things and, you know, I don't know, it just got to be a bit crazy. But like all the metallic dragons are good dragons, right? So uh, I didn't have much reason to know what they breathe because they weren't enemies. You know, I, I know I know my enemy, not my not not, you know, potential allies. I mean, the, I never the good dragons were never around when you needed them anyway. But um, Brass Dragon, let's see. Um, uh, pennies? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this says it has actually two breath weapons, a cone of sleep gas, mm-hmm. or a cloud of blistering heat. That was a little tricky. I, I won't penalize you for not knowing that one. Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, boy, I, boy, some of these, these are all tricky. I don't know. I'll just read what some of these are. Some of these metallic guys. Mm-hmm. Bronze is repulsion gas or lightning copper is slow gas that means it slows you down or acid uh and gold is fire or chlorine gas <laughs> i wouldn't expect you to know, know that one you know chlorine gas doesn't actually seem like something a good dragon would breathe right i mean that's that's like pretty nasty hmm. i mean that's caustic stuff well what if you have a pool or something <laughs> come in handy. it's like yo Yo, gold dragon pool boy, get out of here. <laughs> get, those, get those leaves out of there while you're at it. <laughs> oh my god, that's, that's like a robot chicken sketch. <laughs> okay, green dragon. Poison. Yeah, very good. Uh, red dragon. Well, fire, of course. Yep. Uh, silver dragon. Yeah, what's well, another one of those metallic ones? Um, I don't know. Uh, cold and paralyzation gas. Mm. These are some pretty sophisticated gases produced in the bellies of these dragons. Yeah, I have to say. Okay, and finally, last but not least, white dragon. Oh, hmm. Cold, right? Yeah, yeah. Ice. Ice, yeah. I forgot about the white dragons. Actually, isn't there isn't there a platinum dragon? I thought there was. Not in my Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd right. Edition Monsters Compendium Volume 1. Maybe I'm just thinking because uh, there was platinum money... In, in Dungeons and Dragons, that uh, you know, because as everyone knows, um, platinum is worth the most, and then and then gold, right? And then yeah. and then like what, electrum, uh, and then silver, and I don't remember, copper, <laughs> copper maybe, yeah, yeah. Well, there's like a million. There's actually a bunch of other dragons in there, but they're even more obscure. They're like the Eastern yeah. dragons and stuff. So 
Um, that's one of the cool things in Naomi Novik's series, actually, is is that there are different types of dragons in there as well. I mean, they're not um, categorized as as simply as in D and D, whereas like you know by color, but there are like sort of distinct different breeds, and and you know they have different abilities, and and different ones breathe different sorts of of, of things as well. So I mean that that. Uh, that was very cool to me, you know, coming out of D and D to have the dragons like that, but have it have it feel original and not just copying what was in D and D, you know. Mm-hmm. So let's see. So so let's talk a little bit about this "How to Train Your Dragon" movie. Yep. Actually, you know, I, I noticed before I went to see this that it had a ninety-eight percent approval mm. rating on wow. Rotten, on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty good. And so, actually, as I was driving over to the theater, I was wondering, is this going to be the best dragon riding <laughs> movie of all time? And then I was thinking, well, wait, what are its... <laughs> right. What's the competition? That's so, a good question. So, like, the sort of dragon movies that have kind of come to mind, just sort of off the, off the top of my head, are Dragon Slayer. This mm-hmm. is an old one. Did you ever see this one? I did, but I don't remember it very well. I, I, I sort of remember this. I don't think I ever actually saw this whole movie. It would just sort mm-hmm. of be on TV when I was a kid, and I would catch bits and pieces of it. I remember it having sort of pretty good special effects for the time. Right. But I don't know if I would really call it a good movie or anything. Um, and then Dragonheart. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see this one? I did. Yeah, I, I don't remember it being particularly good, but you know, it was quite a long time ago, so I'm sure it. it I'm sure it hasn't aged very well. I know the dragon sort of isn't it like Sean Connery's voice yeah, or something. Yeah. It's like that seems like just. <laughs> I, I can't imagine actually watching that now and thinking that was good. Yeah, even at the time, I remember thinking it was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> um, uh, the, the the premise, I guess, is that it's uh, a young wannabe knight makes a deal with a dragon where he'll pretend to fight it to chase it off and they'll kind of it'll be kind of a lucrative scam for the two of them mm-hmm. and i guess this is very similar to a roger zelazny story called the george business so lots of people online seem to be suggesting that the writers of dragon heart were you know shall we say inspired mm-hmm. by this roger zelazny story um actually this roger zelazny story was actually outright plagiarized once by a, a high school kid Hmm. who submitted it to a newspaper contest and, and won $1,000. You know, he got first first prize, but then, uh, you know, people were like, hey, I've read this story before. Hmm. Well, I'm glad he got caught. Well, I'm, I'm glad he got first prize. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, that's... that's I would feel bad point. if he got, like, you know, if he got third, like, if this, you know, Roger Zelazny story got a third prize in it. Right. So, actually, you know, Zelazny has a lot of kind of cool kind of novel takes on dragons. He has another story I really like called The Monster and the Maid. It's sort of a short, funny story. I can't really say anything about that one without spoiling it, but people should definitely check that one out. And then actually in, in some of the Amber books, there are some lines about dragons I, I kind of like. So uh, in The Guns of Avalon, there's this this line where he says, The only dragon we encountered was lame and limped away quickly to hide, singeing daisies as it panted and wheezed. And I've always just liked that image of the dragon, you know, the wheezing dragon burning daisies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in uh, in Blood of Amber, they're walking around the city of Amber, and he says, an old man walking a tiny green dragon on a chain leash touched his hat to me as I passed and said, good evening. And I've always liked that image of like the dragon, like, like a little poodle, <laughs> you know, that you walk <laughs> around in the evening on a leash. Yeah. Let's see. But getting back to movies, I mean, there was the Aragon movie I actually never saw. Huh. I never yeah. saw that. I never saw it either. I also never heard anything good. <laughs> like a single good yeah, thing my, about it. My niece, uh, who actually loved the book, even says that the movie is terrible and and can't encourage anyone to watch it for any reason. Mm. And so, the, the probably the best dragon movie I can think of is Reign of Fire mm. with um, Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey, mm. which is quite good for about half an hour. <laughs> uh, then it really goes off the rails. 
but did you, did you see this one? I did, yeah. And actually, I, I was thinking about that, and uh, I was thinking that I remembered it being kind of fun, but um, I didn't remember it quite being good. Um, so that that what you're describing kind of sounds about right. Like maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe no, it's a half it, hour of good movie in there somewhere. It's sort of it's sort of a post-apocalyptic thing where dragons are real but they were kind of in hibernation for a thousand years or something so we all just assumed that they were imaginary and then they come out and, and burn up everything and so there's a bunch of you know a couple of fairly young guys and some kids who are kind of camped out in this ruin hiding from the dragons and they're, they're, they're the only survivors as far as they know and then a team of dragon hunters show up who have uh, tanks and airplanes and stuff and so all that's that, you know it, you, like you you start watching it and it, 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 it is really cool i mean it's it's sort of the first half hour or so of a really good movie mm-hmm. and then it just kind of turns into like a stupid you know there's like a king dragon if they kill that all the dragons will die or something and but that's still that really is like the best dragon movie that i can think of so i think i'm gonna have to give it to, to how to train your dragon as the best dragon you know right the best like movie focused on dragons that i that i can think of and well i don't know what john what, what we haven't talked since since we've seen this so what did you think of right. how to train your dragon no, i really liked it i mean it's uh i mean i think the the only like negative thing i had to say about it was uh something we sort of talk about in in the history episode is that um you know there were some bad accents it focuses on this group of like sort of vikings you know and uh and a bunch of the vikings are voiced by people who apparently have scottish accents and it's like you know just obviously scottish and i'm like this and it just kind of annoyed me because i'm like it's just so wrong i mean if don't even try if you're gonna get it that wrong i mean you're just, that's just a different accent <laughs> you know but no i mean other than that i mean and, and the thing is that it's those are all background characters really so like the, i mean like the main character like he isn't annoying himself and um although he has a stupid name right like what's his name hiccup hiccup right and uh no i mean I, I thought it was a lot of fun i li- I like the way the kid had has this relationship with the dragon and and you know he sort of you know has to it's like this coming of age story along the same times and uh it, it does a lot of cool stuff with the the mythology of the dragons too i thought like uh i mean there's different kinds of dragons in that as well and and they're you know interestingly different and uh and you know there's a lot of cool visuals like i'm him flying around in the dragon and stuff I, I thought it was a lot of fun yeah i really liked the designs of the dragons it was like it was a very you know there was nothing really wrong with it i have mm-hmm. a, i have a bunch of just to give us something to talk about i'm gonna pick some nits but uh sure it is you know it is just quite a good, good a good enjoyable you know kids animated movie but yeah like the hiccup thing that kind of bugged me because like it, it's just kind of a stupid name but it doesn't seem like the name because we see his father for mm-hmm. a lot of the movie and he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would name his kid hiccup right right you would think he would name his kid thrasher mm-hmm. or dragon's bane or something like that 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 would actually kind of make more sense, wouldn't it? I mean, because uh, it, it would just make him it would make him more of a joke. Like if mm. he had a name like Thrasher, and he's just like this little weenie who, who like you know can't live up to his his father's idea of being a warrior and a man. You know. Mm-hmm. No, I think that would be funny if he's just like you. You guys, you can just call me Ted. You know. Yeah. <laughs> his dad's like, no, your name is Thrasher. Right. But sort of, it seemed to me like I kind of had some of the same issues with this that I had with Shrek, mm. and I really like Shrek, but. It seems to me that the kind of the message is muddled in a way mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. you know what I'm going to say? Well, go ahead. Well, well, because it seems like the message of Shrek is supposed to be that it's not what's outside that counts, but what's inside. And, you know, you shouldn't just judge people by their appearances. And an ogre, you know, who has a good heart is great. And it's better to have a good heart than to, to be pretty, which is what happens with the end of the princess. Mm-hmm. And so all that is good. But then for the whole movie, they make fun of the prince guy for being short. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, 
you know it's like don't be superficial and judge people by what's outside and that guy's short <laughs> what a joke you know and it's just like it just it seems like the story the film is just at war with itself on that point mm-hmm. well what i was gonna say um with the uh, how to train your dragon actually is that there, there's kind of a, a not great message in there in that like they're like enslaving these dragons right i mean yeah yeah so that's like kind of part of my kind of th- something i wondered about like do all these dragons really just want to be like pets for these vikings and right i mean a lot of those vikings are really big i mean would you want one of those vikings riding <laughs> around on your back all day but um just in terms of the themes it seems like because because how it starts out is it seems like it's gonna the the message is kind of it's gonna be like you know there are dragons and we just assume that they're evil but actually they're kind of like your mom's always telling you about bumblebees you know just leave <laughs> the bumblebees alone and they won't bother you you know Mm-hmm. Uh, and so once you realize that dragons are just they're basically okay then we'll all get along you know and so you have a human like a viking got kid and like a dragon and they kind of bring their two species together mm-hmm. um and that seems like the way it's going and that would make perfect sense i mean it would be kind of predictable but but then like two-thirds of the way through the movie it turns out that there's this huge evil dragon mm-hmm. you know who they can't make peace with and it seems and actually that was that was like my favorite part of the movie because that was the first time i was really surprised and that was a just kind of a cool visual where all the dragons are swooping into this big volcano and dropping stuff into the maw of this gigantic monster you know the, but then there's this big evil dragon that they have to kill and like it seems like that the movie it's it's kind of fighting against it has like these hollywood formula things it has to do that kind of make the me- that kind of confuse the message you know there's been you know this this kid and and he his turning point is when he realizes that he you know you can make friends with the dragons and he has this dad who just wants to kill 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 dragons all the time but then at the end the kid has to come in and kill a dragon right and you know it's kind of it's just kind of weird i mean uh and it was not clear to me whether the the big dragon was actually evil or not Mm -hmm. or is he just like some really big dragon and he just needs a lot to eat and he's kind of doing the best he can you know, by enslaving all the other dragons and making him, them feed him, but could he actually just eat less? Do you think? Could he <laughs> go on a? Could he go? On a, could he go, go on, a yeah, could he go on a diet or does he? Do they? Does he? Do we have to kill this guy? I guess so. If the film is going to have a climax, I guess you have to. Yeah, well, that was kind of part of the thing. Is it seem? It seems like the, in order to get the climax in under the running time, a lot of sort of weird stuff had to happen. Like when his dad says, you know, the dad's like, you know where the nest is? We're going. Mm-hmm. and and hiccup says well wait don't go there's this gigantic dragon that you can't possibly fight against and his dad's like i don't need to hear any of this garbage <laughs> you're like well wait if i were going to go attack some dragons i might want to spend a minute listening to the kid yeah, some... who's, who's kid who's been there and get some yeah, right. intelligence on it you know <laughs> well there's they, big stupid vikings you know they, don't, they never <laughs> planned anything out ahead and also you know he's like wait you can you can train these dragons and ride them and shoot fireballs that's outrageous <laughs> you know it's like wait wait you know you're like a military leader you know right might you yeah, would, might, might would... you want to maybe use that yeah that wouldn't come in handy <laughs> i mean what i thought would be kind of cool is if you know you have this this fight between pacifism and militarism and so 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 hiccup realizes that you can make friends with the dragons and his dad just wants to kill the dragons but then it turns out that there's this big evil dragon that they have to kill and Hiccup doesn't want to kill it because he thinks he can make friends with it in a misguided way. And so mm-hmm. he tries to make friends with it and then realizes, then he sort of gets himself in trouble and his dad has to come in and fight the dragon and help him out. And so then at the end, it turns out that, you know, you can't have excessive pacifism or excessive militarism. Mm-hmm. You have to, 
you know, that the world is a complicated place and we need diplomats and we need soldiers. And the father and son realize that they have something to learn from each other. That was well, for... no, that, that would work out pretty well. That would, yeah. Thanks for ruining the movie for me. <laughs> well, maybe you should write some children's literature that has such sophisticated uh, thought processes put into it. Well, maybe I will. The, another thing I, I didn't like was I just really did not like Astrid. At oh all. yeah, no, she's kind of annoying. I agree. Like, um, I, I didn't get like why really he would be so enamored with trying to impress her. Right, and it's it's like exactly the same thing as like I was saying with Shrek is that the the message is supposed to be, oh, this this hiccup kid, you know, he doesn't meet all the stereotypes of what somebody of his gender ought to be, but mm-hmm. he's got a good heart, and if you just look below the surface, he's got potential, right? Which is all good, but then when it comes to the female love interest, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, wait, why is she attracted to her? And from the point of view of the screenwriters, they're like, whoa, whoa, who wouldn't be? She's gorgeous and blonde and skinny, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like, you know, why why is there such a big disconnect between the, the message that we seem to be getting when it comes to Hiccup and the message we seem to be getting when it comes to Astrid? Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, like if she had been nice to him ever... That would be one thing, or if there was, you know, just stuff to like like about her in terms of her treatment of other people or something. But she's just so like mean and, and condescending to him mm-hmm. until he becomes a big celebrity, and then she totally changes her mind, you know. And I don't know. That just well, she was the only girl in the in the movie, wasn't she? So by well, default, she was his love interest. Well, there was the female twin. Oh right, yeah. But that's that's still yeah. Well, that's not really a good reason for me, you know, to <laughs> no, like know. to like be really invested in this romance. Well, right. it's like, well, she's the only girl his age on the entire <laughs> island. But but so here's my advice for Hiccup. Hiccup, first of all, change your name. <laughs> and you've got a dragon, right? So just get out of there. You know, get out of that like podunk Viking town. Go to the big city. Go to the big city, or the tropics, anywhere. You know, and find a girl who appreciates you for who you are. And he's going to stick by you, regardless of whether or not you've got a dragon to ride. <laughs> right. I agree with you. That's good advice, Dave. Oh, but uh, speaking of movies, um, you know, I think uh, movies like uh, How to Train Your Dragon and uh, an Avatar actually will really sort of pave the way for some new great dragon movies in the future. Like I was reading some article that was talking about, um, you know, Anne McCaffrey's Pern series, uh, bringing that to the to the silver screen at last uh you know mm-hmm. i mean it's been this uh iconic dragon series uh in novels uh for a long time and um or i should say uh, this iconic series of uh this iconic series in literature for a long time but um it's never been adapted to a film but i, I mean it would probably be impossible previously uh because you know i mean it's it's all about riding dragons and so like you know the dragons would have to be on screen almost all the time but, you know, what we see in Avatar and in, and in How to Train Your Dragon, I mean, that kind of shows us that, you know, we could see it either as an animated feature like How to Train Your Dragon or or as a sort of live action movie like Avatar. And uh, it could be really amazing. So, um, I mean, I think a lo- there's there's going to be a lot more competition for the title of best dragon movie in the future here. Hmm. You know, like the, the George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire is coming to hmm. HBO. Right. And there are dragons in that. And so... You know, sort of like we were saying with The Hobbit is, you know, that's something I worry about. That, I mean, that's one of the harder things to do is to to, to mix the dragons into the live action mm-hmm. stuff. I really hope they're able to, to do that well. It's funny, actually, if you read the um, the dedication to Storm of Swords, it's it's it says for Phyllis, who made me put the dragons in. Hmm. I guess his original, con- you know, he wanted to do 
fantasy that felt more like historical fiction. And so I guess the original concept was just to do a, a fantasy, but with no magic at all. Mm-hmm. And she convinced him to put in the magic stuff. So that's so hence, hence the dedication to which I'm very grateful mm-hmm. to her. Cause I, you know, I really, I really like the magic stuff, but yeah, it is going to be a challenge bringing it to the screen. But so let's see. So, I mean, speaking of dragon news, there's this uh, nightshade anthology coming up called wings of fire edited by Jonathan Strand. Uh, that people should definitely check out. Like it's got the, uh, the Rogers Lozny story, the George business that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's got a story by Naomi Novik. Uh, it's got a story by Holly Black that we interviewed uh, two episodes back, along with just a bunch of other you know, big-name authors, George R. R. Martin, Orson Scott Card, Ursula Le Guin, and so on. Including the, the first of the Anne McCaffrey uh, dragon stories. It, you know, it originally began with this story, uh, Weir Search, um, as, you know, a novella back in the 60s, and then eventually grew to be, you know, encompassed this big series that includes many novels and stuff. Yeah, this, this anthology actually also includes one of my favorite uh, dragon stories, uh, mainly because it's like this completely different treatment of dragons. But, uh, you know, The Man Who Painted the Dragon Grial by Lucia Shepard. Uh, there's also a, a series by James Maxey uh, that starts with a, a novel called Bitterwood, where mm-hmm. it's set in a world where it's kind of ruled by a, a, a sort of a government of dragons, a sort of tyranny of dragons, and the humans have to rebel and, and try to overthrow the tyranny. Is that is that what you call a, a group of dragons? <laughs> a tyranny of dragons? That's it cool. Is, it is now. Nice. Trademark that. <laughs> and actually, you, uh, speaking of uh, trademarking, I mean, you have uh, you have your own uh, pretty great dragon story. Um Oh, thank you. Blood of Virgins. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? or? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, this is, you know, my, my dragon story. I'm, I'm quite fond of it. Uh, it appeared on... It's actually, you can read it on my website, and it's also... It was episode 88 of Escape Pod, if anyone wants to check it out. But it's, uh, it's set in sort of a surreal, alternate, contemporary world where dragons are available as a high-end luxury transportation option, and that the fuel that they use to keep going is the Blood of Virgins. And so the main character is a freshman in college, and he's a virgin, and he kind of develops this sort of paranoid fear that the dragons are kind of watching him and are out for his blood. I think it's, it's kind of a cool, different take on dragons. I really like the story, so people check it out if, you, if you're interested. Yeah, and so uh, some other uh, sort of uh, unusual uh, treatments uh, of dragons that uh, I wanted to mention— um... Michael Stackpole actually has a new series coming out um, this fall from Nightshade uh, called uh, the Crown Colony series, and the first one's called uh, At the Queen's Command. And uh, I mean, I don't know much about it yet, but it's uh, it's described as a high fantasy retelling of the American Revolutionary War with dragons. So, you know, so I'm really looking forward to that just because, like, I mean, I liked I like Naomi Novik's series so much. And uh, I saw that as like such a sort of rich playground to sort of explore different treatments of dragons in, like, you know, just sort of taking different historical periods and, and adding dragons to them and seeing how it goes. And uh, uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm very curious to see what Stackpole does with it, because, uh, you know, like the thing is, like with Naomi, you know, being so open to the idea of fan fiction i kind of wish that i mean i would like actually i would be kind of curious to read fan fiction that was really well you know that was if it was well written you know but set in her world just because like it's such a rich milieu that like i want to know what's going on like in other parts of the world you know because i mean you know there's america in that world too so like you know why uh i want to know what's going on there uh and there's a there's a couple other anthologies as well i thought i'd mention um uh, one of our listeners, Charles Tan, sent me this uh, this uh, Philippine book uh, called "A Time A Time for Dragons," which is subtitled uh, "A Philippine A Philippine Anthology of Draconic Fiction," <laughs> and so it's you know it's all uh, Filipino writers um, 
uh, that might be harder to track down. But I mean, if if you're really interested in that kind of thing, you could, uh, you know, I'm sure it wouldn't be too difficult to find. Um, and then um, Daw actually just released a new anthology called The Dragon and the Stars, um, edited by Derwin Mack and Eric Choi. And it's um, it's all sort it's all like writers of uh, Chinese descent um, writing different you know dragon stories inspired by you know Chinese legend and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, we haven't talked much about you know the origin of where dragons come from or anything. And I mean, I think most people probably know that, you know, dragons sort of come from like Chinese mythology and stuff. But uh, so I guess, you know, this anthology is sort of taking it back to the roots where it came from rather than the sort of modern uh, idea of dragons that like, you know, Dave and I have at <laughs> least, uh, you know, which is based uh, mostly on Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> okay. Well, I just wanted to close with a quote that I really like. This is from GK Chesterton. And he says, fairy tales are not true. Fairy tales are more than true. Not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. Hmm. Especially if you have a blue crystal staff. <laughs> That's not part of the original quote. I, I, or, I added that. Or he's seeking missile. <laughs> and that was our show. Thanks everyone for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on podcasts and then Geeks Guides to the Galaxy episode 17 and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Eric Garcia, co-writer of the new film Repo Men, based on his novel The Repossession Mambo, about a corporation that violently repossesses the artificial organs of people who can't keep up on their payments. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes, or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Headsville 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.